Of that. But as you open your Bibles to Psalm 105, um, I believe within our culture, and really within every culture, uh, there's a, a continual desire, a longing um, for purpose from everybody. From every individual, there, there's this longing to, to have a, a purpose fulfilled, knowing that we are created with a purpose, but wondering what that is and how to fulfill it. I think that's the reason that books like A Purpose Driven Life that came out several years back and others like it have found such success over the years. Ask someone their purpose and they're likely to, you likely get an answer that's revolved somewhere around maybe their, their occupation or maybe their family responsibilities. Like someone would say, my purpose is to be a, a good father, a, a, a good mother. My, my purpose is to be a, a good husband, a, a good wife. My purpose is to be a, a great employee at whatever job fills in the blank there. But what about those who hate their job? What about those who are single? What about those who don't have children. The list could go on here. What's their purpose if our purpose is found in an occupation or a family responsibility? Let's say we even answer that with a really godly answer of saying, my purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What What does that really mean? What do we mean when we say, well, my purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever? Well, that's the answer that we're looking to, to be able to answer today, or the question that we're looking to be able to answer today. So turn with me to Psalm 105, beginning in verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His, His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute to Israel, as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When they were few in number, of of little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the peoples set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to to hate his people to deal craftily with his servants. 
He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of the kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of of their country. He spoke, and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of the ground. He struck down all the firstborn in the land, the first fruits of all their strength. Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give, them, them, give light by night. They asked, and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock, and the waters gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. So this psalm, Psalm 105, it starts with a call to worship in verses 1 through 6. With the psalmist using nine verbs within these six verses to exhort us, the listener, the reader, to worship. And at the same time, using these nine verbs to teach us how we are to worship. And we're going to look at each of them individually here in just a moment. But before we do, we want to see the overall makeup of this psalm and how the psalmist has comprised it to tell us why we are to worship. So five reasons, briefly, of why we are to worship. One, because we remember his faithfulness. That's what's being emphasized in verses 7 through 11. As the psalmist writing in verse 8 says, he remembers his covenant forever. Not for a short period of time, not for a couple days, not for a few moments. He remembers his covenant forever. Referring to the covenant that was made with Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. The psalmist reminding us that God is faithful to keeping his promises. And everything that flows and follows in this psalm builds upon the evidence of God's faithfulness. Two, because we remember his protection. So after focusing on God's faithfulness, the psalmist points to the protection that God has had for his people in verses 12 through 15. This being the protection of Israel before Israel was even a nation. Text saying, when they were few of number, of little account, God allowing no one to oppress them. Why? Because they were his chosen people, his treasured possession. Number three, because we remember his providence. In it's verses 16 through 25, from the summoning of the, the famine to Joseph being sold as a slave, then rising to second in command over all of Egypt to then bring them into Egypt, that is the rest of Israel into Egypt, the Lord made his people very fruitful. The Lord doing all of these things through his providence to display his faithfulness to his promises. 
a reminder that there's no event or circumstance in our life where God is not firmly in control. And maybe today that's a, that, that is what you are here to hear. Maybe the spot and the season where you find yourself, you need to hear, you need to be reminded that whatever circumstance you're in, God is firmly in control. Number four, because we remember his redemption. Verses 26 through 38, composing the longest section of this psalm. God raising up a deliverer in Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. This is basically everything that we looked at in the first 15 chapters of our journey through Exodus so far. Ultimately, raising up Moses to deliver this people. Ultimately, redeeming them from slavery. How? Through the death of the firstborn. Then we had Passover. The Passover, the blood of a sacrificial lamb, foreshadowing then and reminding us now of what? The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. God in his providential plan, sending his son to draw us out of, of our slavery to sin and to death and into a relationship with himself. Number five, because we remember his provision. As we're about to see when we, we enter back into Exodus next week, God is faithful in his provision and his providing for his people, leading his people, guiding his people, feeding his people, giving them water to drink from a rock. Why? Why all of this? Why any of this? Verse 42, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham, his servant. A continual reminder of the provision that God has for his people. As we look at this psalm, Psalm 105, and we look at every single section, there is a constant theme that we see kind of laying forth throughout this psalm. It's God who does all of this, which is a reminder of what? It's a reminder of the grace of God. It's a reminder of the grace of God. It's, it's a reminder that it's God who saves doesn't have to, but he does. And it's not based upon anything we do. Israel only existed because God chose to create them in the first place. But just look with me, going back through this psalm real quickly. Look at starting in verse 8. He remembers. Verse 9, it's the covenant he made with Abraham. Verse 10, it's a covenant he confirmed with Jacob. Verse 14, he allowed no one to oppress them. Again in verse 14, he rebuked kings on their account. Verse 16, he summoned famine on the land. Verse 25, he turned their hearts, their hearts there being the hearts of the Egyptians to hate his people. God did this. Verse 26, he sent Moses. Verse 28, he sent darkness. Verse 29, he turned their waters to blood. Verse 31, he spoke and there came swarms of flies and gnats. Verse 32, he gave hail. Verse 33, he struck down the vines. Verse 34, he spoke and the locust came. Verse 36, he struck down all the firstborn. Verse 37, he brought out Israel. Verse 39, he spread a cloud of covering. Verse 41, he opened the rock. Verse 42, he remembered his holy promise. Just over and over and over again throughout this psalm, what is the, the emphasis that we see being placed? 
He, 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 He being God did all of these things. All of it. Which is to do what to the heart of the listener as we hear this? Well, I guess it depends on who the listener is, doesn't it? If the listener is not a believer, then it may generate an apathetic response. Huh, okay. But not so in the heart of the believer. Not so in the heart of the believer. The recipient of such lavished and undeserved grace. No. What does this do in the heart of the believer? What is this doing in your heart right now of hearing of God's protection and his provision and his providence and his plan and all of that he's done? What does this do? It causes us to behold this great God and to worship him. It stirs our heart to affection, to glorify God and to enjoy him for who he is. So each of these five sections of Psalm 105 they're exhorting us to, to worship. Bring out the, the fan and the flame for us to worship. And the key motivator behind this exhortation is remembering all that God has done. Remembering the faithfulness of God. Remembering his protection. Remembering his providence. Remembering his redemption. Remembering his provision that our great God has provided. All these things finding their fulfillment ultimately in who? In Christ. Christ was faithful when we were unfaithful. Christ protecting us from sin and death, providentially making a way for redemption to take place and to redeem us by his shed blood, providing for us a treasure beyond any measure that we could ever begin to understand or comprehend. All of this fulfilled in Christ. And so with that, let's shift our attention back to how the psalmist exhorts us to worship. How are these affections to be played out in our life? And we have nine verbs that help us guide along the way. Number one, give thanks to the Lord. So as recipients of God's grace, we're to be grateful for all God has done and continues to do in our lives. Not just the good times, but in the difficult times as well. It's easy to give God, or it's easier to give God thanks in the good times, is it not? Much harder to give God thanks when times are tough, when seasons are difficult. But in both seasons, we're to give thanks to God because we remember and recognize all that he has done for us. And so the question here from an application standpoint is how do we do this? And again, each one of these verbs could be a sermon in and of themselves. But I'm gonna give you three practical ways that we can give God thanks. One, they're not gonna be on the screen. You can write them down on your own. But one, by remembering to give God thanks in our prayers. Expressing thankfulness to God in every circumstance. Just making that a matter of discipline to give God thanks thanks, whether married or single, rich or poor, healthy or sick, whatever the season, giving God thanks. And yes, there are going to be times where this is difficult. We're not going to find ourselves being very, feeling very thankful. That's where our faith should not just be based upon emotion. It should be based on the truth of God's word, remembering what he has done, remembering what he promises to do. So many things that we're just not going to understand. 
But what Psalms like this one are intended to do is remind us that sometimes we need to look back. We need to remember in order to spur our hearts to thanksgiving. Remembering that even though we can't see it in the moment, and sometimes it's a long moment that we can't see it, our God is in control. He is faithful. He is protecting. He is providing. He has in the past and he will in the future because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We see this chiefly being displayed again through Christ, who is a reminder of what to us? God's never-ending, unfading, always and forever love for us, of which we give him thanks, which is worship. Two, give thanks to others. Take time to, to thank one another. Give thanks to others for how God is using them in your life. Think about somebody who God has used instrumentally in your spiritual development, whether in the past or in the present, and, and, and take time to give them thanks for what God, how God is using them in their life. Give thanks to, to one another within the church. When was the last time you just went up to somebody and said, I just thank you for, for how the Lord is using you in the life of the church. Thank you for how the Lord is using you in my life. How wonderful would it be to have a culture of, of thanksgiving that is within the church. All of us thanking one another and giving thanks to God for one another. It's an act of, of worship. Three, be, be generous. Christians are to be a thankful and generous people because we realize everything we have and all that we are is from God. That's why Christians give of their first fruits to God. We don't give out of our leftovers. We don't give a mere token offering. We don't keep it all for ourselves. We give sacrificially and we give generously of our first fruits to God. Not out of a sense of obligation, nor as a means of obtaining some time type of blessing. No, we give sacrificially and generously of both of our time and our finances out of hearts of thanksgiving in response to the grace that we have received. All of this thanksgiving being a component of worship. Two, second verb, we call upon his name. This being the Old Testament language for, for gathering publicly to worship, even like we're doing today. So one of the ways that we are to worship God is by publicly gathering with the church to worship. The author of Hebrews telling us in chapter 10, verse 25, not to neglect the meeting together of, of one another, not to, to negate the assembly of the believers together as there's an importance, a God-ordained design and purpose for the church to assemble together and to worship together. God has designed for this to be the case. What we're doing today is a God-ordained design to, to gather together as believers and worship. In fact, one mark of true worship is that we really want to be, we desire to be with and worship with the people of God. So you have to ask yourself, if the gathering together of the church for, for worship isn't something that we see as important or needed or, or desire, then there's a disconnect between our desires and the will of God that needs to be corrected. This Sunday morning gathering isn't just another option in our already busy schedules. 
It's an essential component of our, our worship. Bible studies are great. Small groups are important. But there's nothing more important than the gathering of the church to worship through, through the singing and prayer, the taking of the Lord's Supper, and sitting under the preaching of God's Word. What we do in just the gathering together as believers is an act of worship. Three, make known his deeds among the peoples. This is another common Old Testament phrase. And it's one of the ways God's covenant with Abraham was fulfilled. Remember back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God promising Abraham would be a blessing to all the nations, to all of the peoples of the earth. And one way uh, that this blessing is received among all the peoples of the earth is by us bringing attention to the wondrous deeds of the Lord, making known his, his word, making him known among all the peoples. Psalm 67.1, you can jot it down to kind of look at that later, but it starts with, may, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. To consider the series that we just completed, the series on evangelism. When we share the gospel, when we tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ, we're making known his wondrous works among all the peoples. It's an act of worship. Missions is an act of worship. Number four, sing to him. Sing praises to him. And notice how this is a verb of its own. See, when we say worship or, or, or that we're gathering together for worship, what commonly comes to our mind? Singing. We associate the word worship with primarily being about singing and music. And no doubt they're important parts, but they're only one part. Again, vital part, but only one part. Just think about where we left off in Exodus chapter 15 before we took a break from Exodus for the summer. What had just happened at this point in time? They had just crossed over the Red Sea. They had just been delivered from the hand of the Egyptians. And what did the people do when they crossed over to the other side? They began to sing. They began to sing. It's all song or Exodus 15, like 1 through 22. It's a, it's a song of thanksgiving, a song of, of praise, a natural response to those who have been redeemed. A redeemed people sing. And it doesn't matter whether you can sing or not. I can't. I mean, I was right over behind Rick Marsteller. Our poor guy got to hear me sing like the whole time over there. Like we sing out of a response that we have been redeemed. But singing brings together truth and emotion. It's not just emotion. It's bringing together truth and emotion. It's bringing together truth and experience. It's giving our, ourselves wholeheartedly, heart, soul, mind, and strength to God in worship. We never want emotion minus truth. The song that we just sang, in fact, all the songs that we sang, are laced with biblical truth that are to steer our hearts to biblical emotion as we worship. We're not wanting emotion to drive emotion. We're wanting truth to drive emotion. The truth about Christ to drive emotion. So we want emotion, but we want that emotion laced with truth. That's why it's so important that we sing biblically sound songs. Number five, tell of all his wondrous works. 
Now, what does this mean? Tell all of his wondrous works. It means that we're to talk about the Lord. And not just evangelistically, not just in a Bible study when we gather together, but naturally in our everyday, day-to-day, we are to be a people who are talking about the Lord. And we'll talk about all sorts of things. But we're not afraid to talk. We're just afraid to talk about certain things. We'll, we'll talk about our family. We'll talk about our hobbies. We'll talk about our sports teams. We'll talk about our, our, even our politics. But when was the last time that you and your family, just, just gut check time, when was the last time you and your family, when time you and some friends just had a conversation about God? Not, not church, but God. See, as Christians, we, we should desire to talk about God and the things of God more than anything else. And the key word there is should. But maybe, maybe you grew up in a home or maybe you're in a home now where that's just not normal. It's not been the pattern that you've been accustomed to. I get that. On a very personal level, I get that. See, I, I grew up in a home that would be considered a Christian home. We, we went to church, we did church stuff, but I do not remember uh, us talking about God and the things of God as a family. I don't remember it. I remember us talking about Kentucky basketball. I, I, I remember us like, talking about other things and doing other things, but I don't, I don't remember conversations that centered around God. So now fast forward to today. I'm 40 years old. I have seminary degrees. I'm, a, I'm pastoring a local church. And I still find it incredibly difficult to have conversations about God and the things of God with my parents. To this day, I find that incredibly difficult because it does not come natural. It is not natural. Even when it's brought up, it is, it, it, it's really hard to get that to, to go anywhere. And both of my parents would profess to be followers of Christ. But this is where Leslie and I, this is where Leslie and I have resolved for that not to be the case in our home to the best of our ability. We want our, our son seeing and hearing and being a part of conversations about God and the gospel that are normal, natural part of everyday life. Conversations that are filled with joy about what God is doing, the, the grace of God. But I'll be honest, that takes intentionality. And we are by no means perfect. So many areas where we mess up here. Sometimes, I'm just being honest, I, I fear that he hears us talking more about church than he hears us talking about the grace of God. And that's something that needs to be repented of. I don't want him hearing us talking more about church than he hears us talking about our great God. I don't want him associating even sermon preparation with daddy's personal time with Jesus. I want him to, to see that mom and dad love Christ more than anything else. Even having that conversation when he says, you love God more than me? Yes, son, we do. And having that bewildered moment of like, what? Like we want to be able to talk through those things and why that is the case. It's worship. Number six, glory in his holy name. Now, what's it mean to glory in his holy name? To glory in God is to treasure him 
and to delight in him above all else. To glory in God is to treasure in him and to to delight in him above all else. To think more highly of him than we think of anyone or anything else. So again, as a means of applications, we have to ask, do, do we treasure him? Do we delight in him? Do we think of him more highly than we think of anything or anyone else? And if we're being honest, all of us have to say that sometime the answer to that question is no. But we need to realize that anything or anyone that we treasure in or delight in or enjoy more than God is an idol in our life that needs to be repented of. Even our family, our children, our spouse, our desire for a spouse, our desire for other things. Do we desire those things more than we desire Christ? And if that is the case, then that is an idol that needs to be repented of. Number seven, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Now, number seven and number eight are are closely tied together. But what does it mean to seek the the Lord? What, What does that mean? It means to seek his presence, which is a common translation of the Hebrew word face. So literally, we're talking about seeking the face of God. Something Moses wanted to do, but was unable to do, we're called to do, to seek the the face of of God. And and this seeking is to cause us to, to what? To rejoice, to be glad, to enjoy. But then somebody asked, but Jeremy, I, I thought we couldn't seek after God. Romans 3, 10 through 11, it says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Yes, the Bible says that. That just read the scripture, Romans 3, 10 through 11. No one seeks for God. And it's true. It's true of those who have never been born again. Those who have been born again can seek after God, desire to seek after God, are called to seek after God. Colossians 3, 1 through 2. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Now, how do we do this? Well, we could spend the rest of our time just talking about how we are to to seek God, to set our minds on the things that are above. But primarily, it comes back to spending time in God's word. When our minds set on the things of God, we need to be a people who have our minds saturated with the word of God, reading it, memorizing it, singing it, talking about it. And then the more we grow in knowing him, the more we begin to do what? Rejoice in him and to enjoy him, to enjoy him. I've quoted this before, but A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God, a real small, thin, but profound and powerful book, A.W. Tozer, The Pursuit of God, has a quote. I even remember what page number it's on, on page 14. I even remember where it's at in the book because it's left such a profound impact on me over the years. Like heard it and memorized it long before I even, Leslie was even in the picture uh, here. It is to have found God and yet still pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. 
to have found God and yet still pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. I've always been fascinated by this quote. It's confused me at times, but the more that I've listened to it, the more I've thought about it, the more I've gone back and reread his works on this, the more it begins to make sense. Because to have found God means he drew himself to us, he sought us, he redeemed us, not by our works, but by his grace. It's lavished in his grace. And that is reason to what? To rejoice. To, to rejoice. And, and in that rejoicing, we continue to do what? To pursue him. Not as a means of obtaining our salvation. We, we, we already have it. But what do we do? What do we, why do we continue to pursue him? So that we can delight in him even more to delight in him even more. A husband doesn't continue to pursue his bride in order to marry her, does he? No, why does he not continue to pursue his bride in order to marry her? Because they're already married. They've already said, I do. They're already married. He continues to pursue her so that he can delight in her even more. This is the soul's paradox of love leading us to rejoice. Finding yet still pursuing. Finding, yet still pursuing. This is our continued pursuit of God being an act of ongoing worship. There will never be a time in your Christian life where you will arrive. Like, oh, I've made it. I've figured it all out. I've got all the answers. We are continually pursuing and, and going after God. Think I, I, I'm lying on that one? How many of you have been married over 10 years? All right? Like even five years, right? How many more? Five years. 25 years, anybody in here? All right? Well, we won't go any higher than that. But, but 25 years, of you, how many of you have figured your spouse out, know everything about them right now? No hands going up, right? Now, the newlywed may say that they have. But the person who's been married 25 years and continues to pursue after one realizes that they are having to continually pursue and make an intentionality to grow in their relationship together. See, now God doesn't change, but we are the ones who are changing. And he is the one who, Lord willing, is changing us. If you are in Christ, you are being changed. Guaranteed. Keep pursuing him. Diving into his word and pursuing after him. Number eight, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. And what's this? <laughs> well, this is tying everything we just looked at together with seeking his strength and seeking the face of God. It's prayer. Prayer. We worship God as we pray, which is why God's people are to be a people who pray. Our prayer times, both corporately and privately, are acts of worship. It's the creature, us, showing our total and complete dependence upon our creator. We're crying out to him to do what only he can do. In church, you know what that is? It's worship. Number nine, remember the wondrous works that he has done. And this isn't something we typically think about when it comes to worship. But remembering is an important and essential part of our worship as it's a means of honoring God by remembering what he has done in our lives. I think about when we go down to the memorials in DC. What are we doing when we go down to those memorials? We're remembering. 
Now, for some of those memorials, for many of those memorials, some of us were not even alive when those events took place. We've had to be been taught what took place in the history books and reading about what took place and the sacrifices that were made. One of the, the memorials that we like to, to visit when we go down there is the World War II Memorial. And when we go down there, we, we see the, the, the kind of the honor trips, the honor brigades coming, and we, we see the various veterans who are most oftentimes in wheelchairs or being walked along um, as they're going up to these memorials and they're, and they're the, the emotion that is upon their faces. Bryant, without even kind of teaching him this, uh, we, we told him kind of that many of these older individuals were folks who had fought in World War II. And he took it upon himself to honor them by giving them a salute. And every time that he would see them, he would salute them as a means of honoring. Now we come home and he's at Walmart and he sees a, a lady in a jazzy. He sees a man in a wheelchair. What's he do? He salutes. Because he's associating that anybody in a wheelchair or anybody in a jazzy is a veteran of the war. He doesn't have it all figured out. But he, he's trying to honor through a means of remembering. Remembering what we've been taught. Same with everyone who's ever read or heard of this psalm. Neither the psalmist nor we who, who, are alive, are, who are reading this today were alive when the exodus took place. But what is everyone who reads this psalm doing? We're remembering. Verses 8 through 42 of this psalm are all about remembering. As remembering reminds us of God's faithfulness, reminds us of his protection and his providence and his redemption and his continual provision. And what's that intended to do? to lead us to worship. Now look with me at the final verses of this psalm. And as we do, I want us to, to think back again about where we left off in Exodus chapter 15. The Israelites had just crossed over the Red Sea. They had just been delivered from the Egyptians. And how do they respond? After this deliverance, how do they respond? With joyful singing and worship of the God who redeemed them. So keep that in mind and look with me at verse 43. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruits of the people's toil. And now again, the question is why? Why did God deliver his people from Egypt? Because he promised to. Why did God give his people possession of the land? Because he promised he would. But again, why? We'll look at verse 45. That they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. The psalmist giving us the purpose for Israel's deliverance so that they would obey and observe the laws of God. Which does what? It brings praise to God. Our obedience brings delight to God. But to, to understand this a little bit better, turn back in your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 
Exodus chapter 19, and we're going to look at this closer in a few weeks. But Israel is at Mount Sinai, and God is telling Moses exactly what he's to tell the children of Israel. He's saying, this is what you need to tell them. And we're going to pick up in Exodus chapter 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So pause right there. Did God save Israel by their works? No. No. Did he save them because they were a good people? No. Did he save them because they were more deserving than the Egyptians? No. What's he say? I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God is saying, I did this. I delivered you. I saved you. I made you my people. But then look what he says in verse five. Now, therefore, what is the therefore, therefore? It's everything we just looked at. Because he has brought them and bore them on eagles' wings and brought them to himself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, they weren't saved by their holiness, were they? No. But, and why does God say, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession? Are they not already his treasured possession already? They are. And although they weren't saved by their holiness, they are saved, we are saved to be holy. And their continued pursuit of this holiness is evidence that they are his treasured possession. Now turn that into application for us. And what does it mean? It means that if we have been saved, we've been saved to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And we glorify God most and we enjoy him most when our lives are lived in obedience to his commands. Not as a means of obtaining our salvation, but as the evidence of our salvation. And the glorifying of God comes through the enjoying God in our obedience. This isn't drudgery. This isn't like, oh, i got to do this. It's like we want to do this. We delight in him. We enjoy him. This is what we were created to do. This is the purpose for which we were created, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And this purpose is made possible through Christ and receiving the new birth. It's only possible for us to obey and it is possible for us to obey because we are in Christ. But maybe that's not you today. Maybe you're you're not a worshiping person or people. Christian or not, you sit here, you, you sing, you listen. But if you're being honest, there's no enjoyment, there's no delight. I would love to talk with you. To probe why. Whether it's after I pray, I'll be standing right over there by the Bibles. Be happy to pray with you, talk with you, set up another time to talk. Maybe it's after the service. Maybe it's setting up a time to grab coffee or or, or lunch over the next few weeks. If you're not finding enjoyment in God that is leading to glorifying God, 
enjoying God, there's a problem that needs to be addressed. Don't wait. Let's address it. Let's deal with it. Let's pray. And Father, as we respond to the preaching of your word, we come before you as a people, a gathered and assembled people who declare that our only hope is found in Christ. And in him and you, we rejoice. We find enjoyment. And for those who are having difficulty finding enjoyment in you today, oh Lord, convict them, encourage them, direct them, make your way clear to them. And for any one of us, Lord, whatever sin is standing in our way from enjoying you more, Lord, may we repent of that sin. Turn from that sin and delight in you even more today. Oh Lord, as we continue to worship through the singing together, may we respond faithfully to the preaching of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.